Hello, hello, and welcome back to the UXR podcast. Today, I'm really pumped to be joined by the one and only Kyle Osborne. And uh, Kyle is someone who works with me at UXR Collective. And one of the big projects that he works on every year is our annual researcher salary survey and report. So this covers things like writing the survey, collecting all that data, cleaning that data up, doing the analysis, and then crafting this report. And every year we try and grow our, our survey and report so that it's a little bit more insightful, a little bit more holistic. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting insights from this year in particular because this was the year we dealt with the pandemic. And uh, I think you're gonna find this really insightful. Um, so I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and Kyle Osborne. And as always, if you have questions, you can always email Kyle at kyle at uxrcollective.com. Okay, see you on the other side of this conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the UXR podcast. Uh, today, I'm fortunate to be joined by uh, someone from our team, uh, Kyle Osborne, who is a researcher here at UXR Collective. And today, we're going to be talking about the salary survey and subsequent report that should be available by now at uxrsalary.com. Um, and we're going to talk about you know, what, what's new this year, what we learned, all that kind of good stuff. So... Kyle, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Kyle, first I want to say I'm really impressed with your microphone. That is a really cool setup and way better than me, the podcast host. So I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to take some lessons from you and, and maybe at some point even hand this off to you. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I feel like everyone in that under 26 uh, age group has a really nice microphone in their bedroom for some reason. I'm telling you, the kids these days are all right. Like, these you got 12-year-olds with, like, thousands of followers and subscribers to their podcasts and YouTube channels. It's pretty impressive stuff. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Today, we're here to talk about something that is even more important than creating content, and that's money. Because we just did a, a salary uh, survey and subsequent report, and we learned some interesting things, right? Uh, yeah, we did. I... I feel as though this one was very eye-opening compared to last year's. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I'll just start off by talking about how we've added a cost of living analysis to the salary survey this year. And that was a big deal for a lot of people. Since Before, before you do, um, let's talk a bit about why we even thought about this. Because last year we did the salary survey and we were pretty sure that a small segment of the United States was skewing the salary survey data pretty heavily. You want to talk about that for a second? Uh, yeah, that's very, very true. Uh, so in terms of how we collect data, I think it's pretty transparent that we put our, our survey and we do a geographical breakdown usually by the United States, Canada, and uh, countries in Europe. And what we're looking at data from the United States I think that anyone that works in tech, works in UX, is very aware of the fact that there are a lot of people in the field who live or work in San Francisco. And something about San Francisco for, I'm, I'm really just stating the obvious now, is Silicon Valley uh, salaries are heavily inflated. And therefore, they bring up the median and the average salary within the United States of America. Uh, so it's still representative of what's going on in the States because the majority of jobs are in San Francisco, but it is only telling you half the story in regards to how much money do people make 
And in terms of how much money you make, that's fine and dandy. But in reality, you really need to know, okay, how much am my money really worth? Totally. Uh, so, so, so then we decided, so I think, actually, I think this was, this was your idea of like, how do we start thinking about exactly what you said? Like what the money represents in terms of quality of life. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it was a bit of a challenge to figure out, okay, how do we measure quality of life in a succinct way? How do we get this, uh, the point across people? So I used a database of cost of living analysis from uh, Numbio. And they contain information such as, well, we're only sharing like a sliver of what they're uh, giving the broader public, but we focus mostly on price per square footage in terms of housing costs. So rents or actually purchasing a home uh, through a mortgage. And when we looked at that, it was, it puts the Silicon Valley uh, salaries in a little bit more perspective since you're noticing that it's very, very expensive to live in San Francisco. So that part probably isn't news to a lot of people, but I think what is, is, you know, what were some of the key takeaways in terms of what, what you think were some of the better places to do work from a compensation point of view and quality of life point of view based on the results that you got? Because I think that might actually surprise people a little bit. Yeah. So in this year's uh, report, we actually looked at a few cities within the United States. We looked at San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Boston and Dallas. And when we were looking at average salaries within these different cities, obviously San Francisco is number one. And in last place is Austin. Did I say Dallas before I met Austin? I, I, I'm so sorry. I am terrible at American geography. <laughs> That's all right. You don't live in that country. So I think you get a pass on confusing large cities in the same state. Yeah. It's all, it's all the same to me sometimes. Uh, but when we're looking at Austin, it has the lowest, uh, average salary, but it's not by a ridiculous margin. It's about $30,000 less than what it is in San Francisco. But the cost of living there is literally a fraction of what it is to live in San Francisco. I believe it's like one fifth of the, uh, wow. of the price to like, yeah, exactly. So of those cities, while on average, you're probably going to make the least in Austin just from your, uh, the, you know, what, what's in your employment offer, your quality of life or based on your, how much it costs you to, to, to live is going to be the highest of those cities you mentioned. Exactly. And even when we're saying that it's the least, you have to take that into context. This is all of these cities, like the average salary is still, uh, it's north of six figures. Right. So you really aren't taking that much of a pay cut in terms of if you live in uh, Austin or you live in San Francisco, but you're seeing like an astronomical difference in terms of what you can actually afford to live in a different city. So this is, this is really interesting because uh, f for those of you that haven't heard, there's a pandemic going on. And as such, we're not working in offices quite like we used to. Um, and we've been hearing a lot about people moving out of cities and some cities in particular, like in particular San Francisco, but, you know, also New York City, um, you know, where we, near where we live, Toronto. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about people leaving cities. And this is something that we asked about in the survey. And what did the data tell us about that? 
there are a lot of people living in the city where their primary uh, employer's office is located. It's um, it's almost like 50-50 in terms of people who live in the same city and people who moved out of the city or wow. possibly never lived there at all. Uh, with the rise in working from home, there's a lot less of a need to actually be close to everything. It's more so people are very much so gravitating more towards having space, having the luxury of space rather than the luxury of being close to their uh, to their office because in reality your office could be five minutes away from your bed now. Right, right. Well, I mean, five minutes away from your bed if you're walking really slowly across the kitchen. Um, very, very slow. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty groggy in the morning when I get up too. That, I, I think that's kind of neat because you know it's it's one of those things where you know the 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 public conversation doesn't necessarily you know, reflect what's going on in reality. There's a lot of times where, you know, a couple of stories, we start thinking they're representative, but it's actually just, you know, a few outliers. But it, but in, in this situation, that's that's actually not the case. This is a real change, you know. And do you have any guesses as to whether this will be permanent or not? So when you look at this data, you obviously have to take it, you the numbers are only like half the story. You really do have to look at the social discourse. You have to look at what is happening in reality. Uh, in terms of making predictions about this, I would say the trend should continue. You're seeing a lot of really big companies uh, gravitating more towards work from home. Shopify said that they are closing down their offices permanently and they're shifting to entirely. Um, they just spent a home. lot of money renovating those offices. They're really nice. Yeah. So, like, so I think. <laughs> It's looking like you're going to see a lot of people, you're going to see a lot of people working away from the big cities. You're also going to see that employers are going to have a lot more freedom in terms of talent selection and recruitment. You aren't uh, subjugated to just staying within the metropolitan, staying within metropolitan cities for your talent pool. You can now have employees to work in. I really can't think of a small city right now. That's, <laughs> that's where my brain's at. Let's say Tulsa, Oklahoma. Why not? Um, I was thinking smaller than Tulsa. But yeah, <laughs> Tulsa, Oklahoma is a good idea. Uh, so I think that's neat too because basically, you know, one thing to think about is a lot of the time when you're looking at compensation, it really does kind of account for, you know, cost of living in a particular city. But if you're going to be looking for a job and – or you're negotiating a raise and uh, everything is remote or there's a default remote option, all of a sudden you're able to do a better job negotiating because you know, you're able to look at offers that come with larger salaries from cities or from places that you might not have been able to work at before. Yes, very true. And even uh, speaking back to imagine living in Austin and having a San Francisco Silicon Valley salary. That's completely now, feasible now. Now, that sounds like a good idea to me. This is the best of both worlds. <laughs> You're in the massively inflated like Silicon Valley salary with the very low cost of living that you'd find in uh, large cities within Texas. That, that's, that's something right there. Okay, okay, so let's talk about some of the other things that are, you know, while we're on the, the issue or, or the, the theme of hot public discourse to uh, topics, um, why don't we talk a bit about what you're seeing in terms of uh, the uh, gender pay gap in this space? Did you see one? Is there one? Um, and, and maybe talk a bit about um, 
uh, any any ch- differences in terms of folks who are s- uh, self-identifying as uh, underrepresented minorities in our space? Yeah, so in terms of the gender pay gap, uh, our results are inconclusive in regards to that. So I ran multiple Welch's T-tests. Well, not multiple Welch's T-tests. I ran the data segmented based off of uh, geography, as I said before. So I ran a Welch's T-test for uh, between men and women uh, within every country that we examined. And when I did that, all of them came back with, uh, there was not a significant difference between, uh, in regards to salary between men and women. And there are a lot, there are a lot of things to take into account here. So when I was, when I decided to use a Welch's T-test style specifically for the reason that the groups, uh, the sample sizes are unequal. And that has a lot to do with the fact that there are significantly more researchers who identify as women as than there are at researchers who identify as men. And this says a lot of things about the field. It says that there's, it's, it can say a lot of things about the field. It's brought <laughs> to my attention that this isn't necessarily representative of the fact that there are more women in research than men, but the fact that there's also a trend of women are more likely to complete surveys than men. Very true. And when I'm seeing that there is a, uh, there's a non-significant difference between men and women in terms of salaries, uh, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of caveats to take into account here. So we aren't controlling for ethnicity. We aren't controlling for education. Uh, When we're looking at just men and women together, we aren't controlling for education. We also are even controlling for what school did you go to? Mm-hmm. All these things can make a very big difference in terms of uh, salary. Uh, and we really aren't getting the full picture here when we say that there isn't a significant uh, difference in pay between uh, men and women. Because we, to get into my next point, when we look at what underrepresented minorities are, it's becoming more and more apparent to me that is not necessarily as simple as we'd like to think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you start looking at that intersectionality of someone's identity. Uh, so I can be an individual that identifies with a certain gender, but I can also have privilege in regards to education level. I can have privilege in regards to my socioeconomic status coming into the field. I can have all of these different support systems and grooming that take place that allow me to be aware of, oh, I can actually leverage for this amount of money. I can traverse uh, this landscape, this uh, this culture, this working culture, and actually get more money purely based off of how I've been groomed to deal with situations like that. Uh, and when we look at underrepresented minority groups, we really do have to examine intersectionality there and look at the fact that, well, maybe there is a difference between men and women, but maybe it's not the totality of a women and a totality of men, maybe there's a difference between black women and uh, white men's earning powers. There's a gender pay gap there. Right. See, this is what I'm getting at. We really do, when we start examining underrepresented minority groups, we really do have to break down the intersectionality of things and understand, oh, there are a lot of parts and moving parts and pieces that go into someone's identity that can affect how much money they're, they're capable of lobbying for. I think this is, this is a really good, just general research point that's maybe worth dwelling on. Um, you know, in our, I think in our, in our survey, uh, in terms of the gender breakdown uh, of our respondents, 
I, th I believe there was like a three to one ratio of women to men in our survey responses, something like that. Yes. Right? And so what we can't conclude from that is that there are three times more women in the field than there are men, <laughs> right? It's just the only thing we can conclude is that three times as many women as men responded to our survey. Um, and exactly like what you're, with what you're saying, um, you know, one thing that's pretty clear is that we just, didn't ask enough questions or we we didn't anticipate having the kind of data that we had in order to draw any conclusions about you know some of the t the items that you just mentioned so maybe that's an opportunity for growth for next year but i think this is also just a good reminder in general to be uh, really conscientious about how you interpret survey data and uh, really critical of what questions are being asked who was responding what can you say that you for sure you know, and and what uh, what is you know and too much of an extrapolation from that? Exactly, uh, it's always a very touchy subject talking about gender pay gap, and it's something that you really do have to look at like the big picture when you're when you're just looking at numbers. Yeah, so just because our survey doesn't necessarily say something, you know, this is not uh, stat being statisticians and survey scientists is not our full-time job. There's probably some other resources that we can leverage and some improvements that we can make for next year for sure too. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, that's really neat. Were there any other things that really jumped out to you or surprised you, um, from, uh, from the, the results as you were doing the analysis? Well, there was one other thing that I found interesting, but not surprising especially when we go back to uh, this idea of drawing in public discourse when we're looking at these results. And there's been a, there's been a lot of conversation about how there are dwind the, the number of junior researchers is dwindling. There are fewer this year than there were uh, in years prior. And this has a lot to do with the current state of the economy, uh, the fact that we're in a global pandemic. And all in all, uh, organizations are looking to hire more senior researchers and this has just led to a decrease in the amount of junior researchers this is probably and not good for our field it is not good for our field and i'm not just saying that as a as someone who self-identifies as a junior researcher uh so it, there's a lot of conversation about this but this is the first time i was actually able to see the numbers uh when we when i compared this year's data to last year's data, I saw that there was about a three to four percent uh, decrease in the amount of junior researchers from uh, twenty nineteen to twenty twenty. And once again, we all we aren't getting the full picture because it's a salary survey. People are coming to share information about their salaries. If you don't have a salary, you're less likely to contribute to the survey. So this doesn't even include all of the junior researchers, aspiring junior researchers, people trying to break into the industry who are unemployed right now. Uh, it includes a small, a small percentage of them because we do allow you to stay that you're unemployed, but there, is, there's, there are probably countless individuals who are looking for a job right now who can't find one, and we aren't even aware of them. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the whole purpose of this is really trying to help people better understand their worth and how to better negotiate uh, their salaries, um, understand what value they bring to the table, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's again, like I, like I mentioned before, there are limitations to what we can figure out with, you know, only a couple of people working on this for a few months. 
Um, and I think this is another example of what you're seeing here. Um, you know, just it's, it's very, it would take a lot of time and it'd be very difficult to figure out exactly, you know, what the state is for, again, like you said, the folks who are trying to break in, right. And what their experiences are like and what their situation is like, or, you know, folks who were working for less than a year and then were laid off. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, something that we'll, we'll try and continue to make iterative improvements on this survey and make it, uh, uh, more comprehensive, but this stuff is, is not easy and it's, it's no joke. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to see how, uh, the current landscape of things really influences how you can think about like survey design. Uh, cause it really wasn't that big of a deal to think about, Oh, people who are aspiring to get into the field is a salary survey. If you don't have a salary, we aren't necessarily super concerned about that because it's, it doesn't appear that beneficial. Everyone, uh, everyone also know how many people are trying to break into the industry, but then you get thrown into a global pandemic, you get thrown into a recession, and then there's this massive shortage of junior researchers. And now you really have to think about, oh, wow, how many people are trying to get a job now? Yeah, that's a great point. All right. So Kyle, any parting thoughts for folks who've been listening in? Maybe they're getting ready to apply to a new job, or maybe they're in the process of trying to negotiate their their next raise or their next salary any any final tidbits that you want to share uh final tidbits i'd like to share hmm i would say do your best to think about what's the best situation for you uh we've talked a lot about where you work and where you live really try to make the best of the current situation uh, I keep going back to this idea that we, we are in a pandemic right now, uh, but there are certain opportunities that come with less than ideal situations. So now you're able to really pick what city do I want to work in? What city do I want to live in? Uh, how am I able to take my talents elsewhere, but not leave where I currently am? Try to find as many opportunities as you can in the situation that might appear to be constraining and there are countless opportunities out there. You just have to be creative about figuring out where is the best place for you, uh, for you to possibly be. Totally. Couldn't agree more. All right, Kyle, thanks for joining me today. And uh, uh, where, where can we check out the salary report um, uh, if we want to take a peek at that? Uh, it will be at uxrsalary.com. Awesome. Okay. Uh, looking forward to our next conversation, Kyle. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the UXR podcast. Don't forget, if you want to check out the salary report yourself, head over to uxrsalary.com. Uh, there's a bunch of great information in there for you that will help you make sure that you get the salary that you're worth next time you negotiate a raise or are looking for a new job. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Take care.